0: More than ever, I am super selective on how I spend my time, whether it's choosing which emails to read or how I get my continuing ed units. I want value for my time and efforts. I'm Char Beauchart, and I bet you can relate. So when I say I get my CEUs from SpeechTherapyPD.com, just know their speech language videos and pod courses are practical and totally worth it. And right now, you have the exclusive opportunity to pay less for the subscription than. i I did okay memorize this discount code it's char c-h-a-r just go to speechtherapypd.com subscribe and at checkout type in what char c-h-a-r you get a ten dollar discount for heaven's sakes do it now it doesn't take long speechtherapypd.com you and your speech kids will be glad you did it's time well spent Welcome to the Speech Link. I'm your host, Sharp O'Shart, and I invite you to listen and learn practical strategies from experienced experts to take your therapy to the next level. Welcome to Part 2 of The Perfect Oral Motor Storm. I'm Sharp Beauchart, and you know that if you listened or if you read the handout on Part 1, we covered the goals, an overview of the controversy, and the aberrant assumptions of the controversy that laid the foundation for the remaining four podcasts. Thank you for doing that, but if you haven't, I recommend that you listen or read Part 1 before moving on to Part 2. The podcast is available on iTunes or listen and get CEUs and the handout at speechtherapypd.com or access the handout at speechdynamics.com. This well-researched information covers the oral motor controversy chronologically and sequentially documents what has occurred over two decades that literally swelled into a major perfect oral motor storm in our field of speech-language pathology. Today, we're discussing the beginning. Waves number one, number two, and number three. Wave number one of the perfect oral motor storm was the induction of evidence based practice in 2005. Wave number two, Dr. Loft's 2008 survey, and wave number three, Dr. Forrest's 2008 study. Let's jump in. About the time researchers were grappling with the efficacy of using oral motor tasks to analyze and work with individuals with acquired apraxia and dysarthria, and that was Ziegler, 2002, 2003, Ballard, uh, et al., 2003, and Wiesmer, 2006, the question of applying oral motor techniques to speech sound remediation surfaced. And that was with Forrest, 2002, and then also LOF came along in 2006. The rise of the evidence-based practice wave in the early 2000s coincided with this conundrum. It formalized and gave impetus to the quest to prove or disprove oral motor methods. Now, keep in mind phonology, which emphasizes linguistic and auditory characteristics of speech, was brought forward prior to that time, actually over three decades, and the term articulation which emphasizes phonetic physiological characteristics of speech, was devalued. Speech sound disorders became and is the current accepted standard descriptive term for the speech act. Now, as we go forward here, there are eight short sections within the exploration of evidence-based practice. There is evidence-based practice in ASHA, oral motor under the evidence-based practice microscope, language therapy under the evidence-based practice microscope, the medical community under the evidence-based microscope, evidence-based practice under the microscope, the credibility of research, read it carefully and critically, and evidence-based practice, smart perspectives and conclusions. Here we go. Evidence-based practice and ASHA. In the early 2000s, you might have read articles in the ASHA Leader introducing us to and preparing us for evidence-based practice. Interestingly, the term and definition of evidence-based practice originated within the medical community. One of the first formalized definitions that is still used today was penned in 1996 by Sackett, a researcher, and his colleagues in a British medical journal. It says... Evidence-Based Medicine, it was EBM at that time, is the conscientious, explicit, and judicious use of current best evidence in making decisions about the care of individual patients. It means integrating individual clinical expertise with the best available external clinical evidence and clinical expertise. The third arm, patient values, was added four years later. Well, ASHA followed suit. In 2005, ASHA issued their official position statement on evidence-based practice in communication disorders. The Joint Coordinating Committee was represented by 12 accomplished speech-language pathologists and audiologists, and they stated, The term evidence-based practice refers to an approach in which Current high quality research evidence is integrated with practitioner expertise and client preferences and values into the process of making clinical decisions. Then in her 2007 handbook for evidence based practice, Dahligan, who was on the ASHA Coordinating Committee, points out that some parts of the evidence-based practice definition, actually the research piece, sometimes gets more attention than the individual clinical expertise piece. Do know that evidence-based practice is pervasive in all healthcare fields, including speech language pathology and audiology, nursing, physical therapy, psychiatry, as well as education, etc. Steinberg and Lucy in 2005 compare the label evidence-based to being nearly ubiquitous as (laughs) low-carb. Here's the next section, oral motor under the EBP microscope. In the cover article of the 2007 Advance magazine, the article was called Reviewing the Evidence, Gregory Loft's Critical Take on Oral Motor Therapy. The author, Benotai, I think is the way you say that, states, The debate over ENSOM has spurred ASHA to form the National Center for Evidence-Based Practice Committee. Dr. Loff is a member of the committee, which will evaluate all available data on the topic. One group will focus on the non-speech uses of ENSOM in the areas of feeding and swallowing, and a second group will study speech aspects. Well, The research review article was published in 2009. It is a high-quality, impartial, ASHA, evidence-based systematic review, an EBSR, if you will, Effects of Non-Speech Oral Motor Exercises on Speech. It was conducted by Rebecca McCauley and others, including Dr. Gregory Loff. They researched literature from 1960 to 2007 and concluded... Here's their quote, insufficient evidence to support or refute the use of OMEs, oral motor exercises, to produce effects on speech was found in the research literature. Discussion is largely confined to a consideration of the need for more well-designed studies using well-described participant groups and alternative bases for evidence-based practice. We're going to cover all of this and more in the fourth wave research data. We're going to go into it in depth. Here's the next section, language therapy under the evidence-based practice microscope. Around the time when several anti-oral motor articles were written and when evidence-based practice came into vogue, A comprehensive analysis of language intervention studies was done by Kieran and Gillum in 2008. And we're going to cover this in detail in wave number four, the research data. But just briefly, they located 593 published reports, but only 21 studies met all four of their selection criteria. Eleven of the studies limited participants to children in kindergarten and first grade. But no studies were located that examined the efficacy of language intervention for children in middle or high school. This is a major gap in the language intervention evidence, or at least it was at that time. Also, there's a lack of research on whether various language interventions produce lasting positive effects in school-age children. So, in other words, we don't know if it works or for how long it works. And another major gap in the evidence is that no studies were found that examined the amount and frequency of intervention required to make significant progress on language targets for children in the schools. Karen and Gillum concluded... The fact that only 21 studies out of 593 met our criteria means that there is relatively little evidence supporting the language intervention practices that are currently being used with school-aged children with language disorders. Now, in researchers' defense, And for all of the evidence-based challenges since 2005, in recent editions, I'm seeing more articles that are making a conscious effort to research topics that are more aligned with clinical subjects and applicability. That's a good thing. The next section, The Medical Community Under the Evidence-Based Microscope. In a 2017 study of medical doctors and their application of evidence-based practice in their treatment, and in a section called, What are the Findings? The authors state, quotes, in a primary care-oriented medical reference, 18% of recommendations were based on consistent, high-quality, patient-oriented evidence, while approximately half, actually was 51%, were based on expert opinion usual care or disease-oriented evidence, end quote. Then in the section, How Might It Impact Clinical Practice in the Foreseeable Future?, they recommend, quotes, Primary care physicians should be aware that only a minority of recommendations are based on high-quality patient-oriented evidence. This highlights the need for regular literature surveillance by primary care physicians to identify stronger evidence as it is developed. More research is needed in the primary care setting that evaluates the impact of interventions on patient oriented health outcomes. End quote. Hmm, sound familiar? Yes. Well, we are not the only ones calling for additional research and for those of us that are doing the treatment to um, actually read it and become more knowledgeable on the research. That seems to be ubiquitous as well. Next, here's another section, Evidence-Based Practice Under the Microscope. Evidence-based practice has its own set of challenges in speech-language pathology and audiology, as well as other fields, uh, you know, such as we read in medicine, as well as in nursing, psychiatry, psychology, social work, and public health. And that was via Satterfield et al., 2009. Satterfield cites common challenges across disciplines. One, how evidence should be defined and comparatively weighed. Two, how and when the patient's and/or other contextual factors should enter the clinical decision-making process? Hmm. And I and inserted here. I have a difficult time with this one. As a therapist who works with children, I have yet to ask my first-grade therapy child which type of treatment he or she wants. I'm assuming that that probably relates to the parents at some point. Um, three. The definition and role of the quotes expert. And four, what other variables should be considered when selecting an evidence-based practice such as age, social class, community resources, and local expertise? End quote. In response to the number four item there, the one that I just read, SLPs have variables. We have disorder types, variables within the oral mechanism, Cognitive variables, age, attention, motivation, and compliance, time allotments, group size, support system, etc., etc. Rollstone in 2011 also questions evidence-based practice. Quotes, In the general literature on evidence-based practice, there has been much debate on the nature of evidence. That was in italics. Also, one of the major criticisms of evidence-based practice is that research evidence is not available for every clinical situation. We have large numbers of gaps in our evidence base, end quotes. Regarding the gap situation, Bernstein Ratner in 2006 suggests that, quotes, practitioners may be able to use systematic research from other related fields. End quotes. And this is an excellent suggestion and something that I have put into practice with much benefit for many years. Oral functions and the craniofacial, oral, neurophysiological, respiratory, phonatory, etc. mechanisms are a rich and highly varied and highly interesting crossroads of disciplines. As you search for connections and answers, look far and wide. They're there. We're going to be talking about them and pulling them all together in the last podcast called The New Wave. The next section here is the credibility of research. Read it carefully and critically. The evidence-based label typically indicates a measure of credibility. But are journal articles always credible? According to Steinberg and Lucy in 2005, they say, Unfortunately, the fact that a report regarding a scientific study has been published in a peer-reviewed journal does not guarantee that the study design was methodologically sound, the study was well-conducted, the analysis of the study data was performed correctly, and that the study results were interpreted properly. End quotes. In addition to the quality of evidence, Steinberg and Lucy 2005 offer other issues for consideration. One, the absence of evidence regarding the effectiveness of an intervention does not mean that the intervention is not effective. I'm going to read that again. The absence of evidence. Regarding the effectiveness of an intervention does not mean that the intervention is not effective. Continuing on, in the medical community, Michael Millison, in 1997, cited work done by John Williamson in 1978 and claimed that, "quotes more than half of all medical treatments, and perhaps as much as 85%, have never been validated by clinical trials, end quote. Well, and as we just heard, current day isn't so great either. The second item is, is the study relevant and applicable with the needs of my cases? Quotes, in comparison to the tremendous importance placed on the internal validity of studies, it is striking how little importance has been placed on considering the relevance or the generalizability of the finding for populations and individuals other than those studies. Next section. Evidence-Based Practice and Smart Perspectives. In Dr. Mark Fay's 2006 article, he explains, Evidence-Based Practice does not limit speech-language pathologists to the use of practices that have not been demonstrated to be efficacious and effective, as is sometimes feared. On the other hand, it does require clinicians to do four things. And these are paraphrased. One, Critically self-examine their own practices. Two, consider alternatives that may have more evidence. Three, justify their use of approaches that have weaker evidence. And four, integrate available evidence concerning client and family preferences and needs, clinician experiences, expertise, and theoretical perspective. Dr. Meredith Harold puts evidence-based practice into perspective and discusses the research translation problem and offers suggestions in the July 2019 ASHA leader. She acknowledges there's an evidence gap. Quotes, on one side are the evidence evangelists, whose message tends to be that it's SLP's job to simply read the research, no matter how hard it is to fit it into their workload. And I'm going to say into their lifestyle as well. Their message is that knowing the research is right and anything less is shameful. However, because this message lacks empathy, it can have the unintended consequence of widening rather than closing the evidence gap. At the other extreme are those who disregard the research, but not necessarily explicitly. Instead, they simply proceed with the motto that trusting your own clinical intuition is sufficient. Ultimately, extremist concepts of evidence based practice are neither helpful nor accurate. End quote. So true. Thank you, Dr. Harold. Also, Robin Merkel Walsh in her October 2017 Asha Leader article entitled, consider experience part of evidence-based practice to evolve our profession suggests that we researchers and clinicians work together quotes to me evidence-based practice means more than level one research or large samples or double blind case studies evidence-based practice evolves with evidence and truly listening to our colleagues and to their observations after all Broader research evolves from patterns noted in clinical practice and individual cases. End quotes. Page two. And the last section before we head into wave number two, Dr. Loff's 2008 survey, in conclusion. Quotes. Lack of data does not mean that we should do nothing. Using the limited data that are available along with an analysis of the motor tasks, we can assemble thoughtful paradigms for clinical application, and that was a conversation between Ray Kant and Pam Marshala in 2008. A lack of external research evidence does not mean there is a lack of internal therapeutic evidence. Marshala in 2008 beseeches us, Quotes, To disavow oral motor treatment completely is to discard the 100 years of internal clinical evidence that has guided practicing SLPs to where they are today. End quotes. Implementing evidence-based practice into practical application is challenging at best. It's worth the challenge. Bottom line, study for yourself Read with an alert, critical eye. Research the researcher. Read their Vita. Have they had any clinical experience? Can they relate to what you do as a therapist in the real world? If I were studying surgical procedures, I would choose the surgeon with hands-on experience, not the one who merely reads about surgical procedures. Become familiar with a variety of types of therapy to best serve your variety of cases, personally, personally, prove or disprove the techniques in your own practice. We all have numerous children and adults counting on us. Let's be responsible. Isn't that what evidence-based practice is all about? Let's move into the second wave. Dr. Loft's and Dr. Watson's 2008 survey. It's called a nationwide survey of non-speech oral motor exercise use, colon, Implications for evidence based practice. And that was in Language, Speech, and Hearing Services in Schools, Volume 39. This is probably one of the most important journal articles. If you are going to read one on the subject, then read this one. This is the journal article that has the distinction of starting, if there is a beginning, starting the controversy to bottom line of the 537 SLP respondents of Dr. Loft's and Dr. Watson's survey, 86% experienced speech sound improvement when using oral motor tasks. (laughs) That's a pretty good percentage. So why the controversy? Well, to glean a complete understanding of this information, you may want to read the journal article and the actual questionnaire that they provide at the end of the 2008 article. It, It begins on page 401, You should probably know about the questionnaire that there were 13 sections, and each section supplied specific choices. There was no place that I could see for any kind of write-in or clarification of their responses. And I have to say, if I only read the questionnaire and the results of the 537 SLP's contributions, minus the author's conclusions and chastisement, so to speak... I would come to a completely different conclusion than Laugh and Watson did. In essence, I see responsible, successful SLPs doing their job. But you decide. Here we go. Their stated purpose was to determine if SLPs use NSOMs to address children's speech sound problems. The method 2,000 surveys were mailed to randomly selected SLPs obtained from the ASHA membership roster. Specifically, those SLPs who work with children from birth to 11 years of age were targeted. Questionnaire topics. The authors wanted to explore the type of insums SLPs use their underlying beliefs about ENSOMS training for using them, application of these exercises across various clinical populations, and specific tasks slash materials that SLPs use during intervention. The response rate? The stated response rate was 27.5%, or 537 out of 2,000. Now, by my calculations, I got 26.8%, but I'm certainly no math whiz. The results. 85%, or 456 SLPs, reported using NSOMs to deal with children's speech sound problems. 85%. Fifteen percent, or 80 SLPs, reported that they never used these exercises. Eighty-seven percent, 467, reported that they learned about this therapy approach by attending continuing education offerings, workshops, and or in-services that promote their use. Sixty-eight percent, or 365, indicated that they only use NSOMS as a, quote, warm-up. And then they directly work on speech productions. 25%, 134, evenly divided therapy time between implementing exercises and employing techniques that specifically targeted speech. 7%, or 37, used NSOMs exclusively instead of other activities to target productions. Now, a little bit about the respondents. Who were these SLPs? Where did they work? What did they do? 39% of the SLPs worked with preschool and early intervention cases. That's almost 40%, okay? Another 38% work with elementary school-aged kids. And then you had middle school, private school, high school, medical setting, and other comprised about 24%. So the lion's share were younger kids. And I also have to say, There's a big difference in elementary school of working with a kindergartner and working with a fifth grader. Continuing on, here was another question that they asked and uh, provided the answers, and the participants just had to check. So what disorder population do SLPs treat using NSOMs? Nine disorder populations were listed, okay? SLPs were asked to include if they used NSOMs, either usually, sometimes, or never. And ultimately, the results usually and sometimes were combined. They reported using them for the following populations in order. The number one population that they used these tasks were dysarthria, then childhood apraxia of speech, then structural anomalies such as cleft palate, then Down syndrome. They reported using enzymes less frequently for children in early intervention, regardless of diagnosis, who were identified as late talkers with phonological disorders, with hearing impairment, and with functional misarticulations. Now, remember, these are all in order, in rank order, so it goes from dysarthria to apraxia, to structural, to Down syndrome, to early intervention, to late talkers, to phonological hearing impairment, then functional misarticulations. So the functional misarticulations, and we're thinking probably, what, S-S-H-C-H-L-R-T-H, okay. And then another category was tasks that they used. Now, keep in mind the population of kids that they used these quotes in Psalms with, you know, dysarthria, praxia, and so on. Here were the nine choices that the respondents were given. And here are the results in rank order. Uh, The therapist said that they used blowing, tongue push-ups, pucker smile, tongue wags, big smile exercises, tongue to nose to chin, cheek puffing, blowing kisses, and tongue curling. Okay, that was it. Those were the options. All right, next. The most frequent benefits of ensembles. Okay. Um, the respondents said that the exercises improved, and this was in rank order. One, tongue elevation, then awareness of the articulators, then tongue strength, then lip strength, lateral tongue movements, jaw stabilization, lip and tongue protrusion, drooling control, velopharyngeal competence, and last but not least, sucking ability. Now, within all of this, does the oral motor therapy work? And according to the respondents, the answer is yes. Their clinical observations support the use of oral motor tasks. 92.7% of the respondents observed improved non-speech oral motor skills. 86.3% observed improved speech productions and 68% used oral motor as fallback techniques. Could it be that therapy is dependent on the therapist? Let's move into Loff and Watson's conclusions and then we're going to do some analysis of our own. To set this up, do know that the survey was completed by highly educated, experienced speech-language pathologists. They reported positive improvements of their children's abilities and speech productions. With these positive results, one would normally conclude that the oral motor tasks, the insoms, were beneficial, at least with some of the children. Loff, a researcher and professor, however, offered the following conclusions. In the section, Clinical Implications, page 397, he says, The results of this nationwide survey support the speculation that the use of ENSOMs by SLPs is frequent. It was also found that SLPs use these exercises for children with a wide variety of disorder subtypes, assume that the exercises have benefits that lead directly to speech improvements, and believe— There is empirical evidence for their use. However, the current available research does not support the use of ensembles to bring about changes in speech sound productions. And he got that from Lassen Panbacker, 2008, and Russello, 2008. We're going to be talking about them, their articles, rather. In the fourth wave, research data. They continue on in the abstract on page 392, they state, SLPs need to follow the concepts of evidence-based practice in order to determine if these exercises are actually effective in bringing about changes in speech production. Really? What about the therapist's responses? Don't they count? Let's move into my responses. Here we go. We're going to start with concerns, comments, and conclusions. And I have a, a few subheadings here. The first one is 2004 and 2008. Here we go. In his 13 page online curriculum vita under the section of peer reviewed presentations, Dr. Loft cites a 2004 Asha poster session. It's called speech language pathologists use of non speech oral motor drills, national survey results. And that was uh, presented as a poster session at the ASHA convention in Philadelphia. Then also in the same curriculum vita under publications, he cites the journal article in question, the one that we're going through, a nationwide survey of non-speech oral motor exercise use, implications for evidence-based practice. And that was 2008. Now, I was unable to access the contents of the 2004 poster session, but if the 2004 title The speech-language pathologist's use of non-speech oral motor drills, national survey results, is an indication of the contents. It provides data on the results of his nationwide survey. Now, I've never seen reference to two different surveys by Dr. Loff and Dr. Watson. So if these two narratives, the poster session and the journal article, reference the results of the same survey, why was the title of the 2008 article modified to include evidence-based practice? Now, keep in mind, ASHA instituted the evidence-based policy statement in 2005. So there was the new evidence-based practice topic on motivation for the new title and change of emphasis, perhaps, of his nationwide survey of non-speech oral motor drills slash exercises. Now, honestly, I really don't care that he used his 2004 survey in 2008. But more importantly, I ask you... Did Dr. Loft use a four-year-old survey to ignite and generate a, quotes, poster child, i.e. a type of therapy that is representative of lack of research evidence, in deference to evidence-based practice? If so, he chose a type of therapy that thousands of SLPs have successfully used as evidenced by the results of his survey, with their children and adults for years, actually decades, if he'd only done his homework, he would have learned that very little of what we do therapeutically is, quotes, proven in the literature, especially at that time. But his overt and frequent shaming of evidence-based practice statements put him on the map. He and his ensoms have become a household word. And in my estimation, these types of inaccurate conclusions have been disrespectful, divisive, and damaging to our profession. Char Bouchard here. True story. I just hung up the phone with an SLP that had attended an on-site seminar. She said she loved the seminar, but she forgot to fill out her ASHA participant form. Sounds easy enough, huh? Uh Uh-uh. The seminar was three months ago, and all the paperwork had been submitted, and ASHA doesn't take late forms. So I said, Linda, you have to file an appeal with ASHA. Then she said, this is a nightmare. I drove two hours to get there, two hours to get home, and now I have to file an appeal. I felt for her. And then I said, Linda, have you ever heard of speechtherapypd.com? She said, no. I said, just get your CEUs online, girl. That's what I do. You don't have to leave home. They have over 500 hours of video. A huge variety of topics for SLPs that work with children and adults. And if you don't want to watch a video, then listen to the pod courses and get your CEUs that way. Then she said they're pretty expensive, right? I said, uh, no. Their plans start at $89 a year, for heaven's sake. And then I said, do you want the icing on the cake? SpeechTherapyPD.com has scheduled a CEU cruise next summer to Italy and Greece. Woohoo! She said, okay, I'm looking them up right now and so should you. SpeechTherapyPD.com. Check them out. Tell your friends. You'll be glad you did. Analysis. The author's rationale. To determine Dr. Loft's and Dr. Watson's rationale, we must read the terminology carefully. So here's a few sentences that I'm going to parse the words, okay? Let's see if we can figure out what they're thinking. The first sentence of the first paragraph, Dr. Loff and Dr. Watson say, quotes, speech language pathologists working with children with speech sound disorders may choose from a number of phonetic or phonemic treatment approaches. Okay, let's look at that term, speech sound disorders. There are two ways of interpreting the word speech. Have you ever thought of this? In effect, Speech is the acoustic result, the sound, of the articulated movements, plus airflow, plus possibility, possibly phonation, that a person orally forms to generate a specific speech-sound act, an individual t- or s- or er, etc., or combination thereof. So when we say that the child has a speech-sound disorder slash delay, what does that mean to you? Does that mean the acoustic results... Or the oral movement act of generating the s, for example. It depends on your view of speech. I know that Dr. Loss's primary philosophy is firmly planted in the phonological camp, emphasis on auditory and cognition. He uses the following terms throughout the article speech sound disorders, sound problems, sound production problems, sound errors, speech sound system disorders. The emphasis is on sound, the acoustics, not the creation or the movement act of the speech sound itself. I could find no definition or explanation of any of these labels. Also, I speculate that they are referring to children, perhaps four years and above or so, maybe three, with functional phonological delays." In the second sentence in the first paragraph, Dr. Loff and Dr. Watson say, quotes, a phonetic treatment approach is typically chosen when it is assumed that the underlying cause of the speech sound, and I'm thinking speech act here, difficulty is a motor deficit. So therapy emphasizes the establishment and practice of oral motor movements, end quotes. And the fourth sentence, Dr. Loff and Dr. Watson say, quotes, On the other hand, a phonemic approach, treatment approach, is typically chosen when it is assumed that the child's speech sound disorder, the acoustic result, is related to poor representation, the auditory piece, and organization, the cognitive piece, of the sounds within the language system, the acoustic result. Phonemic intervention approaches focus on changing the child's phonological rule structure by addressing classes of sound, the acoustic result. Now, there are a couple of major issues here. And based on my reading of many journal articles, okay, it appears that when a person that focuses on the phonological aspects of speech hear the word motor their interpretation goes to the state of the muscles, i.e. the neuromuscular piece. When a person that focuses on the phonetic aspects of speech hear the word motor, their interpretation goes to oral movement. Big difference. Also, speaking of the word cause... Anyone who has worked with speech kids knows that their etiology is not always known or clearly categorized, but we know there's something wrong. Okay, that brings us to Dr. Schreiberg and his colleagues, recent 2019 speech disorders classification system, the SDCS, that they worked on for the past three decades. Their results are finalized in six open source articles that you and I can access The one I'm especially excited about is the one on idiopathic, unknown causes of speech delays. Now, within the motor speech disorders category, okay, motor speech disorders category, they've got a bunch of other categories. But within that category, okay, there's childhood dysarthria, there's childhood apraxia of speech. They added a new classification of speech motor delay, SMD for, I'm going to say, all the other kids, okay, all the other kids that don't have dysarthria, childhood dysarthria or CAS. Their motivation was, apparently, quotes, the hypothesis is that a presently unknown percentage of children with idiopathic speech delay have a motor component associated with the delay, Now, I wrote an entire blog just on this topic. So if you want to go to my website, speechdynamics.com, you can find number 54, Schreiberg's new motor speech classification blog. Next, analysis. I have seven clarifications. Here we go. First, if 85%, 456 working, experienced SLPs, successfully use and see speech results by applying their oral motor techniques, the appropriate and respectful response would be to determine what those SLPs do in their therapy, why they do it, and replicate it. The inappropriate and disrespectful response is to inform your responders they're doing it wrong because the techniques haven't yet been proven by research, i.e. in the lab. Second, Each one of the 85% working, experienced SLPs are aware of their responsibility to remediate or generate speech sounds. Speech is the ultimate goal. No matter how you get there, the term non-speech is inaccurate and disrespectful. Third, in Dr. Loff's conclusions... He acknowledges that SLPs use oral motor tasks with a wide variety of disorder subtypes. Yeah, I agree. However, apparently based on the results data, he makes a perplexing assumption that SLPs quotes, assume that the exercises have benefits that lead directly to speech improvements. End quotes. Well, the high data percentages state that the children do improve. Fourth, also in Dr. Loft's conclusions, he states, the current available research does not support the use of enzymes to bring about changes in speech sound productions. And he uses Lassen, Panbacker, and Rusello there. And this is a popular phrase to use when disparaging oral motor. In response, it's my opinion That it was Lass and Panbacker's unstated goal in their research review to prove oral motor ineffectual. Throughout their article, they make the following inference at least 20 times. Quotes, there is weak or limited, weak or limited evidence to support the use of insompties. In contrast, throughout evidence-based systematic review by Macaulay, in 2009, they conclude there is insufficient evidence to support or refute the use of OMEs to produce effect on speech was found in the literature. There is a need for more well-designed studies. Regarding Rousselo's 2008 article, it's not a research review. It is, however, from my perspective, a well-annotated article that successfully lays out his view of insompties and the current controversy. Fifth, in his questionnaire, Dr. Luff lists a random mix of 13 non-speech oral motor tasks and incorrectly assumed that all tasks are used with all kids. Those that successfully do oral sensory motor therapy know that the tasks are selected and implemented according to the age and the needs of each child. Many representative tools and tasks weren't even listed. Sixth. There is a glaring misconception that the, quotes exercises listed in the survey are sound stem tasks, i.e., wag your tongue, say an S. Okay? This is ludicrous. Oral motor tasks facilitate the capability to produce speech. All therapy, no matter the type, builds capability. And it's a process that takes place over time. I don't care if you're using a phonemic approach or a phonetic approach. You're building capability. There's something going on, why that child is not producing the sound, and you're changing the child's ability to do it in a correct manner. Seventh, there is some confusion that working experienced SLPs apply oral motor tasks randomly and haphazardly to be clear Competent thinking therapists during therapy simultaneously focuses on the child, analyzes his or her therapy methods, observes how the child is responding, and determines therapeutic adjustments according to the needs of the child. That's called doing therapy. Competent therapists utilize a foundational rationale in their therapy. It's not haphazard. And SLPs would not continue to do oral motor tasks if they did not work. Here we go with the third wave. This is an overview and a critique of Dr. Forrest's and doctor Iuzini Iozini-Siegel's 2008 article. It's called A Comparison of Oral Motor and Production Training for Children with Speech Sound Disorders. Seminars in Speech and Language, Volume 29. This is one of two comparison studies when it comes to oral motor therapy. It's also one of the primary articles cited as proof that enzymes are ineffective. So I have, therefore, singled it out from the group of research studies that we're going to be looking at in the fourth wave called Research Data. Now, Dr. Forrest's and Dr. Siegel's article is a relatively direct comparison study very clean. I think they covered all their bases. They dotted all their I's and crossed their T's, but with undeniably questionable methods and conclusions. Now, I'm not talking about scientific method. I'm talking about the type of therapy methods that they chose to do, specifically the type of methods that they did with the Insom group. We're going to be covering that So following are my details along with my personal observations and critique. The purpose of the article, they state to compare the relative effect of non-speech oral motor exercises, ENSOMS, with traditional production treatment, PT. So there's ENSOMS and PT. There were nine children with phonological articulatory disorders, PAD, PAD. Now, it should be disclosed that as far as is known, the NSOM kids did not receive any sound stim, any sound stimulation or opportunities to hear or imitate their target's sound. Apparently, it would have invalidated the study. The Study Rationale and Literature Review In the one and a half pages preceding the methods, Forrest and Siegel present an overview on oral motor related topics. The authors use Wiesmer's definition of insoms, quotes, any performance task, absent phonetic goals in which structures of the speech mechanism, especially those of the upper airway, are used. Much of the remainder of the information in this section is a, I'm going to call it a reproduction of the content that she wrote in her 2002 article, and also in Dr. Luff's um, Five Theoretical Reasons to Question Using NSOM. They are the theoretical questions that have been posed frequently in Dr. Loft's convention handouts and articles and courses and podcasts on strength and tone, part and whole, task specificity and development, warm up and relevancy to speech. Now, just so you know, we are going to be addressing these in the five reasons. Okay. The five reasons that Dr. Loft poses his theoretical reasons to question using insom. They're going to be in the fifth wave. Okay. I also have to say, as I read and comb through this article, that the anti-oral motor bias of this study is clear from the start. Now, the methods and participants of this study. There were 10 children ages 3 years, 3 months, to 6 years, 3 months recruited through newspaper ads and flyers. English was their primary language. They had normal oral structures and past hearing screenings. Once they were identified, all were assessed over the course of two one-hour sessions. So there were several things that were administered there. And if you want to know specifically, go to the article or take a look at the handout um, on the third wave, Forrest's 2008 article. Now, the treatment procedures An alternating treatment design was used. Criteria. Targets included at least one omitted sound, a second sound that was either omitted or only produced in a single word position, or in a single lexical context. They also had a, a control sound that was an omitted phoneme that was linguistically unrelated to either of the treatment targets. Quotes, prior to treatment onset, baseline data were collected via sound-specific probes for each child's production of the treatment and control sounds. These probes were also used during treatment to test for generalization to non-treated words. Ensomes were provided on one sound, PT was provided for another linguistically unrelated sound, and a third sound was monitored as a control for non-experiment effects. Each of the nine subjects, and by the way, I think one child actually remediated before it started and had to be excluded. But each of the nine subjects received both ENSOMS and PT during each 60-minute session two times per week. Which one occurred first was randomly selected, the PT or the ENSOMS. Each, Each treatment lasted 20 to 30 minutes with about 10 minutes Play break in between. There were two phases for each treatment type imitation and spontaneous production. The PT sessions included 100 trials of three consonant vowel consonant stimuli. The ensomes, sound specific ensomes, apparently were selected from marketed sources. And they state that although enzymes typically are used in conjunction with PT, such a design prevents evaluation of the independent benefit of each treatment type. So they're trying to eliminate as many variables as possible. I understand that. But anytime that you do anything oral motor, you do focus on the speech sound. So it says that for that reason, enzymes were trained independently of PT in this protocol. Now, following are some of the insom treatment tasks they used, and this is pre- presented verbatim. Quotes, insom treatment began with various resistance exercises and activities that required the child to move around the room for two to three minutes, and facial stimulation that included having the child pat and stroke his or her face for two to three minutes. Warm-up activities were followed by, so those were warm-up activities, okay, by 100 trials of three different enzymes, such as stroking the center of the tongue with the tongue depressor, applying resistance tasks, resistance against the tongue, and lifting the tongue tip to the alveolar ridge. All exercises were modeled by the clinician until the child reached the criterion to progress to spontaneous production, which, of course, didn't happen. The results... The PT yielded a 30% increase on average in sound accuracy relative to pre-treatment production compared with a 3% change that resulted from NSOBs. I'm surprised that anything changed with those poor kids. In addition, no changes in the control sound production were noted for any of the subjects. No facilitative effect of ENSOMS was observed on production targets. Well, I'm not surprised. And ENSOMS did not appear to provide children with increased oral motor skill. Well, how could they? This type of ensom activity is not, it's not like fancy sound stem. Okay. Here is their discussion presented verbatim. Results of this investigation do not support the use of NSOMs as an effective procedure for improving speech sound protection. There are many reasons to question the use of NSOMs as, as a means of remediating speech disorders, including theoretical, i.e. transfer of training, anatomical, and empirical concerns. All right, here is my response. My concern with this study is not the mechanics of it. It's the content and the conclusions. And it's rather like feeding a child Brussels sprouts and saying they're strawberries, okay? Nothing about the selected and administered non-speech oral motor exercises is representative of the current oral sensory motor therapy one would do with these types of speech sound-delayed, cognitively aware children. And yet... It proved their objective. Look, oral motor doesn't work. It is my opinion that the study was set up to fail and to prove a point. See? Kids don't like strawberries. There was an assumed misguided expectation that a random set of odd tasks would somehow merge into the correct production of the target sound that, by the way, was never presented to the child during therapy. Regarding the selection of the ensigns used in this study, the authors state, sound-specific ensigns were selected from marketed sources. Two sources they reference are, number one, Diane Barr's book, Oral Motor Assessment and Treatment, Ages and Stages, 2001, and a second book, The Complete Oral Motor Program for Articulation by P.E.H.D.E. al, 1996, which I'm sorry, I'm not familiar with that one. I am familiar, however, with Diane Barr's book, and I do know it is not written with the higher-level, more capable, speech-delayed child in mind, like those presented in the present study. In her 2008 ASHA poster session, she referenced her 2001 book, Quotes, The book addresses assessment and treatment of children with feeding and motor speech disorders. The book discussed the interrelated nature of neurology, anatomy, physiology, and development with the treatment areas of feeding, motor speech, oral facial myofunctional, oral awareness and discrimination, and oral exercises and activities. It focused on the integration of these areas so SLPs could view the topic or oral motor assessment and treatment as a whole. Now regarding the NSOM tasks, the following are variables that can make a difference in therapy results. The tasks were treated as random, haphazard, unconventional sound stem tasks. There was no stated therapy progression, no shaping of abilities, or speech sounds. The authors say they were selected with specific speech sounds in mind. They weren't specified. There was no stated philosophy or rationale base for using the ensembles they chose. Why were tongue resistance tasks included? Did the children need them? Or there's just an assumption, oh, we're doing oral motors, so we're going to do tongue strength and toning tasks, whether the kid needs it or not. Was there any sensory awareness going on to aid in the therapeutic process of learning as is typically included during real life therapy? Did the therapist merely do the prescribed sequence of tasks to the child or was the child actively involved in the process? So I have a question. Is this what researchers believe oral motor is when working with speech sound delayed children? If so... They are mistaken and terribly misinformed. It is my view that if all oral motor therapy was implemented in this outrageous manner, our therapy kids would make no progress. They would be totally unmotivated and in therapy for the duration. Now, there's also one more thing about this study. I'm hoping that you're able to go to the actual article and take a look at Table 1, Summary of Participant Characteristics. It's also on page five of my handout. As you look at table one, the ages are provided in months. To make an analysis and interpretation of the data clearer and easier, you might want to write them in in years and months. If you have the handout, I've already done that for you. Also, I would have appreciated learning more about the VOM. It looks quite informative. I see that there's a maximum score of 171, but I have no reference as to what that means. I think it had something to do with oral motor and the child's capability. Take a good look, if you will, at the target sounds and the children's ages. My question is, did we throw out developmental norms when I wasn't looking? Okay. I mean, if you look at subject number one, who was three years, eight months, they were asking the insom child, which they really didn't ask the child to do it, but that was the target sound, was a CH. The PT or production target sound was TH. The control sound was ERR. Ah, uh, if you look down at your three years, three months child, you've got a TH there. The three years, six months, and number seven, we're asking that child as an insum, which of course we didn't ask him, but he was responsible for it, for the R, and then the production target was a TH. Take a look at it, see what you think. I'm just thrilled that some of the kids made progress in this study, and uh, I'm, I'm happy for them. I just wish that the NSOMs or the oral sensory motor tasks could have been more realistic and more helpful and beneficial to the kids. Thanks so much, everybody. See you next time for part three of The Perfect Oral Motor Storm. And in that part, we're going to be looking at the additional and tsunami of research data that happened during 2008 and 2009, as well as getting into Dr. Loft's theoretical reasons to question using Insom. Reason number one, part, whole, training, and transfer. And reason number two, strengthening the articulatory structures. We're going to look at strength, tone, and endurance, and what you should do and what you shouldn't do. Alrighty. Thanks so much. Thanks for all you do with your kids. Hey, busy SLP, Shar here. Here's a tip from me to you. Every week, become a lot more informed. Sign up for Therapy Matters at charboshart.com. It's free. Learn our tick and language tips and techniques and tons of ideas for making your school therapy life easier and more effective. I've been a therapist for 30 plus years and I love to share what I've learned. Sign up for Therapy Matters, read it or listen to it, At Charboshart.com, you'll be glad you did, because the therapy that you do matters. Sign up now. Thank you for listening to the speech link. Please check out my other offerings at my website, Charboshart.com, and also SpeechTherapyPD.com. See you next time for more interviews, information, and insights. Until then, thank you so much for all that you do with your speech kids. Be well, and God bless.